Are you interested in Christian education? Would you like to learn how to be a Christian teacher or how to run your very own Christian school with success? The GCS Apprenticeship Program can help. Learn more on our website at gcsapprenticeship.com. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents Setting the Record Straight, where various Christian Reconstructionist pastors seek to understand and dissect the issues that are plaguing the church today, from the pulpit to the pew. Hey, y'all, thanks for being with me this morning. I have been thinking for a while about evangelism and reconstruction and what you hear a lot, and it's true, what you hear a lot is that if if we are reconstructionists, if we're post-millennialists who believe that the kingdom of God is going to be implemented, established, however you want to say that, if the kingdom of God is going to gain ground in the world, it's going to have to be by the spirit-empowered preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, and I, when I say gospel, I'm not excluding the law. Or you know, I believe you have to use the law to preach the gospel. So uh, <clears throat> don't get tripped up there. I'm just saying that post-millennialists ought to be the most ready evangelists in the world. That ought to be a passion for us to evangelize people because that's how the kingdom is really going to spread. And to our dismay, I think it's, uh, I'm not saying anything radical. We can look around and see that reconstructionists are just generally not that. Now there are there are exceptions, and I really believe that the influence of abolitionists on Reconstructionists here in the last couple of years has been very healthy in that regard, and and has made a lot of us more enthusiastic about actually preaching to the unsaved, and so. That's not what I want to talk about. (laughs) But there is something that's similar to that. In the same way that a post-millennialist ought to be the most zealous preacher of the gospel. So when we call ourselves theonomists and we advocate for the continuing validity of the moral commandments of the law of God, When we call ourselves by that label, one thing that ought to go along with that is that we ought to be the most zealous defenders of the law of God against unlawful uses of the law of God. To put it plainly, there ought to be no more zealous preachers against legalism than a theonomist. We should be the ones that are zealous about making sure that people are not using the law unlawfully. It's not just the antinomians that we're preaching against. We're preaching against those who would take the law of God 
and use it in ways that are no longer valid with the coming of Christ. And we should be zealous for that. We believe that when the law of God is used lawfully, it really fulfills what James calls it, the law of liberty. On the other hand, when the law is not used lawfully, people are put in bondage. And theonomists ought to be the most zealous defenders against all forms of legalism, all bad uses of the law. And to read our writings, you would think that we're really just on about antinomians who don't care very much about the law. It shouldn't be that way. It's, it's shocking to me. We get accused of being legalists all the time. But we should be the ones preaching freedom in Christ. We should be the ones preaching the liberty that the law brings in such a way that if anybody's going to accuse us of anything, it ought to be that we're uh, maybe a little bit too free with the grace of God. And in that vein, I want to take you to the book of Colossians. Uh, No, I'm sorry, not Colossians, the book of Galatians. And in the short time that we have, I want to show you that Paul lays out ten at least, there may be more, and maybe you would quibble and and combine two or more of what I'm going to present. But I'm going to present you with ten arguments from Paul in the book of Galatians, arguments against returning to the law subsequent to coming to Christ, returning to the law in an unlawful manner. And specifically, I mean here, I I think we'll see it, but Paul is talking about uh, returning to the shadows and the types of the law of God. Uh, In fact, in the same book, I think he's going to make it plain that he's not talking about, he's not talking about there being something defective about the standard of righteousness that the law presents. That's not where the danger lies. The danger lies in using the law of God as a covenant of works or to establish your own righteousness or to prove that you have been made righteous. None of that is a lawful use of the law of God. It's also unlawful to go back and now that I'm in Christ to go back and as a Gentile think that maybe I should circumcise all my babies or that I should uh, begin to observe feast days or sacrifices, this and that. So we are talking about two particular legalistic uses of the law. One having to do with justification. We're going to see Paul give ten arguments about why you should not lean on the law as the source of your justification or to validate your performance and get your ticket punched or anything like that. The other illegal use of the law is to go back, now that we have the substance of everything that the ceremonies were talking about, we've got Christ. We've got the one who was casting the shadows. And so it it would be illegal for us to then go back and make a big deal about the shadows. The way to show that you have learned what the road sign said as it was giving you directions as you're traveling down the highway, 
the way to the way to show that you paid attention and you actually took on board what the signs were telling you the way to prove that is to actually arrive at your destination you don't go back and take those road signs that got you where you wanted to go you don't go back and take those down and put them in the trunk of your car and carry them with you the fact that you get where you're going is proof that you paid attention which is all the signs wanted you to do in the first place okay so 10 arguments very quickly uh, these could all probably form their own Sunday morning sermon so I'm going to blast through these Ten arguments against returning to the law, either as a source of justification or as uh, as a set of mandatory ceremonies. The first argument is this. He urges us in Galatians chapter 2, in the argument with Peter, he urges us to take Peter's example. And specifically, what Peter did was he was tempted to go back you know since coming to christ and since living for a time in galatia around the uh gentile christians peter uh, he's the one that received the vision of the sheet lowered in acts chapter 10 and and eating the unclean animals that god had now called clean he's the one who had received that so now he's in galatia and he's living with the gentiles which Jews shouldn't be doing. He's eating with them like Jews shouldn't be doing. And he's basically living like a Gentile. He's not living according to the ceremonies of the law. But he and Barnabas were carried away with hypocrisy when certain Jews came from Jerusalem. Famous incident, Peter was opposed to his face by the Apostle Paul, and he dressed him down. One of the things he said was in verse 17. Paul says to Peter, If while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be, for if I rebuild, if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Uh, that strikes a lot of people as kind of hard to understand what he's, what he's exactly saying there. And I think what he's saying is just this, that when the gospel came to the Jews, it showed them what the law was always pointing to. That is, it showed them that they needed to seek their salvation outside the law of God, and particularly in Christ Jesus. And so what happened then is the Jews begin the Jews who are converted to Christ now they're abandoning by and large the ceremonies that were in the law certainly after 70 AD all those ceremonies were abandoned not a single Jewish sacrifice has been offered since that time and so the temple the priesthood the food laws the the ceremonies and involving days and months and seasons and and all those things are done away in Christ Jesus and what what Paul is now saying to Peter is you know if you abandoned all of those things because you felt like Christ was calling you out to a new thing now for you to 
go back when certain people show up for you to go back and start acting like, oh, no, I, I never abandoned these things. I, I agree. These things are all wonderful and good, and, and we should be doing that. What are you doing? You're basically saying that Christ is the one who called you to abandon the law, and now you're saying the law should not be abandoned. Who is right here? Is it Christ who called you away from those ceremonies? Or is, are, you, are you now speaking right in going back and acting like a Jew again? You who live like a Gentile. Now you're going to act like a Jew again. And so uh, Paul's argument here is that to go back for the Jew who has begun to live more like a Gentile than a Jew, for that Jew to go back and start being a Jew again, is basically a confession that Christ led me away from that which is good. He led me away from the law and from living like I should be living. So the first argument against the return to the law is that to do so is to admit that Christ made you sin. Argument number two is found in chapter 3, around verse 2 and following. Paul's argument there is to the Galatians' experience, and what he's saying to them is, your experience is not the law, but hearing with faith. Particularly, in verse 2 he says, this is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things indeed in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by the hearing with faith? And so Paul is asking the Galatian uh, church itself, everybody that's a member there, how is it that you receive the Spirit of God? Was it through the ceremonies of the law and the things that the law demands that you do as a, as a form of worship? By separating yourself from the Gentiles, is that how you receive the, the Holy Spirit? By circumcising yourself, is that how you receive the Holy Spirit? And the answer is, of course not. How did you receive the Holy Spirit? Through the gospel. By hearing what the Spirit said through the gospel preaching and coming to Christ. Christ poured out the Holy Spirit on those who believed in him. That's how you received the Holy Spirit. And so it's really an argument from experience. You yourselves who are now thinking maybe we should go back and do these feast days, you yourselves know none of that ever benefited you. Do you think so little of the presence of the Holy Spirit that now you're going to go back and do these things that never brought him into your life? So that's an argument from their experience. So this, the first argument is that we're supposed to take Peter's example and understand that to go back is to admit that Christ made you sin. The second argument is from their experience. You, were, you began by hearing with faith and not by the works of the law, and that's how you will, be, you will be completed. The third argument is from the life of Abraham and to understand that Abraham was justified by faith and not by the law. 
the law of Moses, of course, didn't exist at the time of Abraham. Now, hear me. The morality that's present in the law of Moses has existed from all eternity and will continue to exist. The morality that's expressed in the law of Moses is not from Moses. It's a, it's a reflection of the righteousness of God who does not change. So the moral commandments of the law of God are as eternal as God. So that's not what we're talking about when we say that Abraham didn't have the law of God. In fact, if you go back and, and read the life of Abraham, you find God commending him for keeping his commandments. So Abraham was a commandment keeper, but he wasn't justified by works of the law. He was justified by faith. Uh, Galatians 3, 6, and 7 says, Even so Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. So the third argument against returning to the laws from the life of Abraham, realize Abraham was justified by faith apart from the law. The fourth argument, we begin to find that in verse 10 of chapter 3 of Galatians. The fourth argument is that imperfect law-keeping is cursed throughout the Scripture. Imperfect law-keeping is cursed. If you think you're going to earn something from God that you didn't get through the Gospel... You think you're going to earn it by keeping the law, uh, you're placing yourself under a curse. In both Testaments, this is true. Galatians quotes here in verse 10 of chapter 3, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. See, imperfect law-keeping is cursed. Cursed is everyone who does not abide. This is also true in the book of James. In James chapter 2, verse 10, it says, Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not commit murder. Now, if you do commit adultery, but... If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law of God. There's another curse on imperfect obedience. Now, we have a perfect standard in the commandments of the law of God, the moral commandments. That's a perfect standard. But if we think we're going to earn something from God or establish something in our relationship with God by keeping that perfect standard uh, we're, we're wrong. In fact, 1 John chapter 1 says he, he who says he has no sin is what? He's self-deceived. He doesn't know what he's talking about. In fact, in that place it says that uh, 1 John 1, 9, if we will confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So that is something different than thinking that by keeping the commandments of God, I'm going to make myself good in his sight. Every time, every day we go out, we're going to, especially if we're paying attention, we're going to see that we're falling short of that perfect standard of the law of God. 
And so the solution is not to rely on our performance, but on the grace of Jesus Christ, even as we're seeking to uh, walk in increased obedience. So the fourth argument against leaning upon the law is that imperfect law-keeping is cursed. There's a sense in which uh, if you try to keep the law of God with the wrong motivations or for the wrong purpose, you're just bringing yourself under a curse again. Argument number five is that the law did not amend Abraham's covenant. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 15, Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. Even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. What I am saying is this, the law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. Well, there it is right there. There were promises made to Abraham that included the coming of Jesus Christ and his inheritance of all the world. The law didn't interrupt those things. The law was maybe, was you could see it, and when I say the law here, I'm not talking about specific commandments. I'm talking about the old the old covenant through Moses, kind of a parenthetical thing. You have Abraham and you have the promise of his seed. In between those, you have this parenthesis of the old covenant through Moses. Now, the old covenant didn't change any of the promises made to Abraham, right? It couldn't. And so uh, what Paul is arguing here in his in this argument against returning to the law is that we need to understand what the place of the covenant of Moses was. It wasn't to be permanent ever in the first place. And it wasn't really a continuation of the promise to Abraham. It was something off to the side of that just a little bit. Now, not opposed to it. Organically, of course, they both come from the same God, and so they're they're in harmony. And yet, one was eternal and one was temporal and so the coming of the law doesn't do anything to the promise god made to abraham and since that promise includes jesus christ and everything that christ has done and is doing that means now you have a choice which one are you going to be which one are you going to devote yourself to well if we're in christ we have no choice we are part of that other one we're not part of the old covenant through moses we're part of the promises made to abraham so argument five is that the law did not amend abraham's covenant the reconstructionist radio podcast network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce including the audiobooks and audio articles, 
will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom. Argument number six from the book of, of Galatians about why Christians should not return to the law either as a source of sanctification. I emphasize that. The law is not the source of your sanctification. The moral, ethical, judicial standards of the law, those are the standards of your sanctification, meaning when you wonder how you're doing, am I growing in Christ or am I not growing in Christ, the ethical, moral commandments of the scripture will help you evaluate that. You want to know how you're doing? Well, are you keeping the commandments or are you not? Okay, but the those commandments have no power in order to uh, bring about your sanctification. So they're the standard of your sanctification, but not the source. The source is the Holy Spirit given to the church because of the kingship of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> the argument number six is very close. It's attached, if you will, at the end of argument number five, which was that the law did not amend Abraham's covenant or the promises made to Abraham. Argument number six could almost be folded in with that. And that is this, that Christ is the true inheritor. And so unity with Christ makes you one as well. And I mean by this specifically that the promise to Abraham was that he was going to inherit the world. All nations would be blessed in believing Abraham. And that promise is not fulfilled because of the works of the law, but by Christ Jesus Christ is the fulfillment, and he's even now in the process of, of continuing to fulfill that promise made all the way back to Abraham. As people come to Christ as they're converted, regenerated, adopted into the family of God, the promise continues to be fulfilled, which was made to Abraham. Sons and daughters of Abraham through faith. Christ is the one true inheritor, so unity with Christ through faith makes you an inheritor. There are implications for this. This means that the inheritance, the inheritance of the world, does not come by the ceremonies of the, of the law. Right, that makes sense, but here's what I want to point out. The ceremonies of the law are the best ceremonies. You know, no human being is going to come up with a better ceremony. God gave those ceremonies. There's no way any human being is going to come up with better ceremonies. So when we confess that the inheritance of the world is through faith and not through ceremonies of the law, we include in that and any other ceremonies. There are no ceremonies which will bring about the inheritance. And specifically what I mean by this, you're, you're, why are you even talking about this? Well, 
because there are Christians who are post-millennial in their leanings, there are Christians who are theonomic in their leanings, who have this idea that if only within the church, if only we can, if only we can perfect the liturgy and the ceremonies that occur on a Sunday morning, if only we can do those better and better and better and perfect our liturgy, our order of worship, the more we do that well, the more God will be pleased to hand dominion of the earth over to us. So there are postmillennialists, there are theonomists confessing who would say that part of taking dominion over the world means perfecting how we do worship on a Sunday morning. The liturgies, the ceremonies, the order of worship. And my point here is, and I think it grows directly out of the explicit point Paul makes, is if the ceremonies of the law are not what causes the inheritance to come to pass, then no other ceremonies are going going to do it. The funny thing is that when you run into some of these folks who believe in perfecting the church's liturgy for the sake of taking more and more dominion, where do they go to find that perfect liturgy? Not the New Testament. I've seen them go back to the Old Covenant in Moses. I've seen them go back to the five types of sacrifices that are listed in the first chapters of the book of Leviticus and say, right here, maybe with these different sorts of sacrifices and the order that they're given to us, maybe we just need to find Christian versions of those things and plug those into our liturgy. Uh, I've seen them go back to the temple and the tabernacle and the pieces of furniture and the order in which a worshiper would have encountered those pieces of furniture as he would work his way toward the presence of God in the Holy of Holies. And I've seen them try to figure out symbolically maybe these pieces of furniture like the brazen altar that deals with sin and forgiveness and the the laver of water which may does that symbolize baptism and and the light of the candlestick maybe that symbolizes the reading of the word of god and then you have the showbread which maybe has is connected then to the lord's supper and the bread and the wine and and the incense altar is symbolic of prayers and, and so you'll see them what you'll see them do is these people who want to perfect Christian worship go back to the forms presented by Moses. And the thought is, if only we'll perfect the way we do worship, then dominion will be ours more and more. And Paul's point here is that Christ is the true inheritor, not because he performed the liturgies of the law to perfection, but because he's the seed that was promised to Abraham. Argument number seven is uh, kind of maybe summed up by a phrase that Paul repeats or that he has in uh, Galatians 4.21. This isn't where the argument is, but I can hear Paul saying this. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? And argument seven is basically you need to listen to the law and understand what the law is trying to teach you. The law's true purpose is to teach salvation by grace through faith in Christ, not through law keeping. 
We see that in Galatians 3.22. The scripture is shut up all men under sin that the promise of faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ that we may be justified by faith. So you who want to return to the law, make sure you're hearing the point of the law. If the law was a man standing here teaching a class, he'd be saying, this needs to be the last time you show up here. Go to Christ. Argument eight, why Christians should not be going back and either trying to establish or confirm their relationship by means of the law or by the ceremonies. Argument eight is that to go back is to prefer prefer slavery to freedom. Chapter four, verse seven says, therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And in verse 9 of chapter 4, Paul says, Now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things, uh, which Calvin said were the ABCs of religion, the ceremonies of the law, to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. Argument eight is that to go back is to perverse slavery to freedom. That's not me saying that. That's the scripture saying that. That faith in Jesus Christ is what sets you free from what, from what the scripture calls bondage and slavery. Argument nine appears in verse 15 of chapter four where Paul writes, Where then is that sense of blessing you had? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. Have I therefore become your enemy by telling you the truth? Argument nine is another appeal to the Galatians experience. But what he's, what he's basically saying is, remember the good news that the gospel was? Remember how awesome that was when you were saved, when you were converted? Remember that sense of freedom and liberation that you had? What happened to that? Did did that grow old somehow? And after living free in Christ Jesus, are you feeling like maybe what the doctor ordered is for you to go back and pick up a little bit of bondage here and there? How much sense does that make? Remember the good news that the gospel was in your life. What happened to that? Why would you now be seeking to escape from that? The last of the ten arguments that I'll share today is the argument in that begins in verse 21 of chapter 4 of Galatians. The last argument is the Sarah and Hagar allegory. Now we won't read through the whole thing, but remember, remember there are uh, Abraham, Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman, one by the free woman, Sarah and Hagar respectively. Ishmael and Isaac, and the passage goes on to say that these two women, Sarah and Hagar, represent two mountains. 
Mount Sinai, which is in Arabia, and corresponds to the present Jerusalem. And Mount Zion, which uh, this is the heavenly Zion for sure. The Zion that descends from heaven. These are the two mountains. So what Paul is saying here is Mount Sinai. What did we get at Mount Sinai? The law, the old covenant through Moses. It doesn't correspond to the mother of the faithful who is Sarah. It corresponds to the slave woman, Hagar. It corresponds to Ishmael and not to Isaac. And the surprising thing maybe that Paul wrote here, it corresponds to the Jerusalem that existed in the day of Paul. As he's writing this, Jerusalem was more about bondage and uh, and lack of freedom, slavery. It was more about that. Jerusalem, which should have lived free, was living in bondage through the ceremonies of the law, which could never set them free. The Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. Remember the the author of Hebrews says, you haven't come to a mountain that burned with fire and smoke and you know rumbling and, and all that. That's where Mount Sinai was and the presence of God and shaking the earth and lightning flashes and all that maelstrom. That's not where you've come. You've come to Mount Zion, the true Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem. And so what Paul's point here is that now you who are in Christ... You're in Abraham. You're in Sarah. You're in liberty and not in slavery. Pastor Joe Moorcroft points out that this is this is a very post-millennial passage of Scripture. As it quotes from Isaiah chapter 54, it says, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. Scripture tells us who these ones are. The barren one was Sarah, who spent the vast majority of her life barren. And the uh, the one who had a husband was uh, talking about Hagar and how Abraham took her on and she became his concubine and and so she began to give birth to children while Sarah was barren. Pastor Joe Moorcraft points out that what the scripture has said here is that the descendants of the barren one will exceed the descendants of the one who's giving birth to children naturally. In verse 29, as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so it now is. What does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. Who is the son of the bondwoman? Well, according to the way Paul has used this analogy, the son of the bondwoman is the natural Jews who are still, uh, still in bondage to the ceremonies of the law. We are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free woman. In Christ Jesus, your sons and daughters of our great, 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 great grandparents, Abraham and Sarah. Those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. 
to return to the ceremonies of the law or to return to the law as a way of establishing or uh, improving or adding something to your relationship to God is bondage. And Paul has given 10 arguments for why we should not allow ourselves to go there. In fact, he caps it all off in chapter 5, verse 1. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Christians who understand the use of the law as a continuing standard of righteousness, we should be the most zealous to make sure that people aren't using the law in a lawless manner, meaning that they are not being subject to bondage that they're supposed to be set free from in Christ Jesus. So theonomists thought to be the most zealous defenders against legalism. Yes, we promote the law. No, we do not promote unlawful uses of the law. In fact, we wage war against those things. We want to see people set free. The law points to Christ. And after we come to Christ, the law is now our friend And it's able to teach us what living in Christ ought to look like. It doesn't give us the power to do that, but it does show us what it ought to look like. The power comes by hearing with faith. It comes by the Holy Spirit poured out on the day of Pentecost because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We should be all about that. Thank you for joining me here today. Thank you for listening to Setting the Record Straight. Join us on Facebook at the Reconstructionist Radio Discussion Group. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to listen to all of our podcasts and to download our free audiobooks.